afternoon from the Calyx Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grogs. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Thirsty Nerves and Suicidal Palms. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. William Sweet discussing Kicking the Carbon Habit. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I think I'm getting old. <laughs> by the day, by the minute. By the second. Yes. Looks like my urges are not as strong as they used to be. Is that the urge to eat a lot of ice cream? No, actually urge to drink. Ah, okay. Water. Having problems with your flow? Uh, no, no, of no. Of your chi? <laughs> <laughs> well, scientists have known for a long time that old people have a higher incidence of dehydration. And part of the problem is they do not have the same sensation that younger people do. In fact, they don't feel the same satisfaction of drinking water to quench mm-hmm. it. And so scientists wonder for a long time, is this an effect that occurs in the brain or was it through the pathways in their nerves? Mm-hmm. The latest study led by Michael Farrell at the University of Melbourne in Australia have concluded that it lies with nerves. Mm. What happens as you age for these nerves, one of the neurotransmitters, vasopressin, which is a water retention hormone, it hardly responds for the older people, whereas in younger people, it tails off after they quench their thirst. So essentially, the hormone is not as active. So which implies that it lies with the nerve endings. Okay, interesting. I thought it was just marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyways, this was reported in our very favorite journal again. Oh, wow. Very cool. I'm I'm glad they have that journal. (laughs) The Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Well, you know, it was so great that uh, PNAS had another article. I'm they call it quits. Issue. They have a new issue every week, you know. Yeah, that's what makes With it so like great. 20 or 30 stories. Amazing. And luckily, I won't have to commit suicide now that our favorite journal is coming out with these stories. Uh-huh. But that's not quite the case with the suicide palm of Madagascar. That sounds like some new Shaolin Kung Fu move <laughs> from Madagascar. Yes, well, the Shaolin monks uh, have spread throughout the world, especially to Madagascar, I guess. Well, I, wasn't it like Shaolin soccer where they showed that the Buddha palm was the ultimate weapon or something? As we all know, it's the lion's roar. <laughs> the tiger's scratch. Yes. So this is actually very fascinating because this uh, represents a new species of suicide palm that hasn't been seen before. Okay, so what do these palms do? Do they actually commit suicide? Yeah, so that's actually quite interesting. They grow for decades before exploding with nectar-rich blossoms that develop into fruit, and these deplete the plant's nutrients and cause it to collapse. So basically by bearing the fruit, it winds up killing itself for the next generation. Wow. I guess you don't see anything analogous in humans, huh? Yeah, rarely. (laughs) Yeah, I don't see any exploding mothers out there. That just could be a uh, observation bias, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> and this is very fascinating. It's work first discovered by Xavier Metz, who was a French manager of a cashew plantation in Madagascar. He photographed the uh, palm, and the photo made its way to John Gransfield, who's a palm expert at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Richmond, uh, United Kingdom. And he classified it based not only on its uh, morphology, but also on its DNA, which shows it is a novel branch mm. of the family. Uh-huh. So very fascinating. And he named it after his daughter, Tahina, which means in Malagasy, 
blessed or to be protected. So there must be an evolutionary advantage for all this then, right? Yeah, certainly you would think that giving nutrients to the next generation in these fruits that they have a better chance of surviving. Mm. Anyway, very fascinating, and it was published in a recent edition of the Botanical Journal of the Linnaean Society. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. We'll come up in just a few minutes. Mr. William Sweet will join us to discuss kicking the carbon habit. So stay tuned. Rising prices in fuel and energy has given attention to uh, renewable sources and uh, other um, alternatives, including nuclear and uh, biofuels. Well, joining us to talk about some of the issues in energy is Mr. William Sweet. Uh, Mr. Sweet, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. So, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your book and um, how you came to the conclusion that uh, renewables and nuclear are are the best options for addressing our uh, energy concerns and our climate change? Sure. Let me just try to give you the gist of uh, the argument I make in, in the book in a nutshell. Uh, if I'm going on too long, uh, just interrupt any time. Uh, but in essence, it's this. Uh, our... Levels of greenhouse gases now in the atmosphere are so unprecedented, uh, and of course they're getting higher all the time, uh, that we're getting into a zone where really we don't know what could happen. Uh, we, we see news all the time now of, that of, of very alarming developments, you know, the melting of the polar ice, species disappearing, uh, increasingly frequent uh, uh, abnormal weather and severe weather, uh, droughts. Uh, uh, heat waves, you know about all of this. Uh, but the situation is uh, really, I think, even more serious than that. Uh, it's not just that we're seeing more and more alarming effects and that we're almost sure to keep seeing more and more of these kinds of effects, but we've actually gotten into a, uh, uh, a situation now with greenhouse gas levels so high uh, that something really even more catastrophic or cataclysmic could happen. Uh, if we don't uh, try to work our way out of this uh, situation as quickly as we can. I'm arguing in my book basically that the United States, uh, as the country that's in a position to do the most to address this problem, uh, really ought to uh, get with it and uh, instead of being the laggard uh, in the global effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, should take on a leadership role. And that means, first of all, uh, immediately ratifying the Kyoto Protocol Ratifying the Kyoto Protocol now means that uh, we have to cut our greenhouse gas emissions not just by 7% or so, which would have been the case if we had ratified 10 years ago when it was actually adopted, uh, but because our greenhouse gas emissions are now so much higher, it means cutting our greenhouse gas emissions by about 20% immediately. If we were to elect a president two years ago who's committed to doing that, doing that would imply having a program to cut our greenhouse gas emissions by about 20% essentially immediately. So uh, I, had, I asked the question then, well, well how can we do that? Uh, well, if you look at the technologies that are actually available to help with that task right now, there aren't that many. Uh, uh, basically, the only substitutes we have uh, for carbon-intense fuels we're using in the electric generation sectors 
Uh, that means basically coal. Uh, it means basically coal. Uh, the only technology we have to substitute for coal are wind, natural gas, and nuclear energy. Uh, so I think we have to reconcile ourselves uh, to sharply reducing the amount of electricity we're generating from coal uh, and replacing that electricity with, uh, with essentially carbon-free or very low-carbon sources uh, of, of uh, energy. Uh, again, that means basically wind, gas, and nuclear. Uh, you, I'm sure you're going to ask uh, why not uh, make the cuts in the automotive sector, which is, which is uh, the part of the situation that tends to get the most attention in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if we were to cut, if we were to try to cut uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 20 or 25 percent, mainly by cutting uh, automotive fuel consumption, that means cutting our annual gasoline consumption by about 50 percent. Uh, it would not be impossible to do that. It's technically completely feasible to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the only way to do it uh, and do it fast would be to either impose really draconian gasoline taxes uh, or impose fuel efficiency uh, controls, which would affect that, which would you know have the same effect of like basically forcing people to uh, throw their SUVs on the junk heaps tomorrow <laughs> and replace them by uh, much more fuel efficient cars. That's the short answer to, to I think the question you asked. I understand you come from a, a journalist background. Um, so there is a, a gap between the public's knowledge of energy use and its contribution to global warming. And I think as recently as June, uh, the Pew Research Center had a poll releasing saying that only 50% of Americans think that global warming is something that we should take action on immediately. Uh, whereas if you did the same poll in, you know, say, Japan or Europe, uh, it's clearly over 90% having um, a consensus for action. And so there tell seems me, to... Tell, right me, which, tell me, excuse me, if, if you don't mind my interrupting you, uh-huh. uh, which, which polls were those that you were uh, the Pew, The Pew Research Center. Uh, you know, Time Magazine did a poll earlier this year, uh, I think in conjunction with other news organizations, and uh, its results were a little different, uh, if I remember correctly. I think they found that something like two-thirds of the American public was actually quite concerned about global warming and wanted the government to be taking more action than it's taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess, uh, I guess different polls are going to get somewhat different uh, results depending on uh, how questions are phrased and so on. Right. Uh, I guess I don't disagree with the thrust of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some gap between... Uh, uh, I'd say scientists' perceptions about uh, uh, the situation we're in and the public's perceptions. One interesting gap, you know, that emerged in the Time magazine poll was that uh, the public mistakenly has the impression that scientists are very divided about this issue. Right, Uh, right. And this is something, I guess, that's sowed by um, these naysayers, uh, these think tanks that have a lot of of uh, resources to to um, spill out this message. I'm afraid that's right. Uh, the, the fossil fuel industry, uh, both the coal industry and the oil industry, has put a lot of money into uh, supporting uh, so-called think tanks that uh, uh, put out a skeptical message about about climate change, and 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 uh, also. Uh, 
you might say, promote skeptics. They, they, mm-hmm. uh, they go out and find people who have a skeptical position and do everything they can to publicize the views of those skeptics. And it does seem that they've had quite a bit of success with this, in the sense that the public uh, has the misimpression that uh, scientific opinion is much more divided about these issues than it really is. Uh, and uh, in the time poll, it, it actually appeared that the public had the impression that it, the public was more concerned about global warming than the expert scientific <laughs> community, which is, of course, flatly the opposite of the truth. Of the, of the truth. Right. So I'm curious, um, as a journalist, how do you reconcile um, the need for for producing a balanced story where you have all you know influential viewpoints, and then at the same time be able to report on uh, you know what is the prevailing uh, consensus among the scientists? Well, uh, you know, there got to be as as in the in the journalist community broadly, uh, as people have been looking at these polling results. Uh, People who specialize in doing science and technology journalism have gotten a little bit concerned about whether, in fact, uh, they're somehow contributing to the problem or not doing enough uh, uh, to, uh, to, to educate the public or inform the public about what scientific opinion really is. And uh, uh, you're probably aware of this, that uh, uh, there have been articles appearing in uh, publications read, read by journalists suggesting that perhaps uh, journalists in the United States have gone a little bit too far and, you know, always uh, feeling they have to report both sides of the story, you know, always getting a, pro, a con, you know, a composition of every proposition or a proposition of every composition, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, when, when reporting on, on uh, issues pertaining to climate change and global warming, uh, that if uh, working journalists always make a habit of finding a climate skeptic for every uh, climate change true believer, uh, this feeds this misimpression that uh, somehow these two camps are represented in equal numbers. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, the, the community of, of scientists who are really knowledgeable about climate uh, science uh, that is, say, the people who are, you know, credentialed to do research in this field, uh, uh, are almost unanimous. Uh, and when I say almost unanimous, I mean that pretty literally. I mean probably 99 out of 100 of them mm-hmm. uh, are firmly convinced that climate change is taking place and that human activity is an important factor now in making that climate change taking place. And uh, when you get into the question of... of how serious a problem this is considered, and what people think should be done about this, then things get. Then I will admit things get a good deal more ambiguous, uh, and opinion becomes more diverse. Uh, but there's hardly anybody who works in the field of climate science right now, and I mean by this, uh, geophysicists generally, generally atmospheric scientists. There's hardly anybody who doesn't think this is a serious problem. Right. Um... So, um, in your in your book, you you also discuss the the nuclear option, uh, and for you know certain groups of environmentalists, that's um, a palatable alternative. Um, you know, how do you convince them that this is also an option that we have to um, look at for the next uh, few decades? Well. It's a difficult. It's a difficult problem because, of course, people are very leery about relying more heavily on nuclear energy, and uh, and people have lots and lots of good reasons for being leery about it. 
And so uh, uh, it, it's difficult to know uh, if you look at you know if you look at the uh, public broadly, or even just the part of the public that's very seriously concerned about environmental issues. Uh, it's hard to know just exactly which issues are uh, of decisive importance. Uh, some people are concerned about uh, some people are very concerned about the problem of nuclear waste disposal. Uh, since 9/11, a lot of people are very concerned about the problem of terrorist attacks on nuclear facilities, either mm -hmm. on nuclear power plants or on fuel handling facilities, spent fuel storage ponds. Uh, then, of course, since Chernobyl, there's been very serious concern about the possibility of a catastrophic reactor accident. Uh, there's always been very serious concern about nuclear proliferation, uh, which is actually the aspect of this whole problem where I sort of got in on the act. I originally got was really interested in. Uh, these issues of energy and uh, uh, energy policy, mainly from the point of view of nuclear arms control. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of issues to be concerned about, and uh, it's not completely clear to me uh, which, at the moment, uh, are the ones that are worrying people the most. Uh, I guess the thrust of what. I believe is that uh, when you look at all those problems and uh, look at them in the perspective of the larger problems we're facing having to do with climate and energy use, uh, that the risks and dangers associated with nuclear energy are somewhat overstated or, uh, or overrated uh, uh, among many uh, environmentalists relative to uh, dangers and risks and uh, drawbacks that uh, associated with other energy technologies that are also very well documented and well known. Uh, it's not very widely known among the American public, I believe, and probably not well known even in rather well-informed, even in the rather well-informed environmental uh, science community, that coal combustion in the United States accounts for about 30,000 deaths a year by the best expert es estimates. Uh, we rely on coal for more than half of our electricity right now in the United mm -hmm. States, and that proportion is right now growing very fast. Right. Uh, we tend to think of coal as an old-fashioned technology, you know, as something that's kind of 19th century and uh, associated with the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution in England and the United States, and so on, which, of course, it is. Uh, so we don't think of coal uh, as, uh, first of all, a big part of our energy equation right now, and still less do we imagine that it's the part that's getting more important all the time. But in fact, uh, ever since oil prices began to rise sharply several years ago, uh, our reliance on coal has been increasing. Uh, I would guess that it must, we now be, uh, probably are relying on coal for about 60% of our electricity. Mm. Uh, uh, the environmental and public health consequences of that reliance are quite drastic. It's right. killing about 30,000 people a year. It's accounting for hundreds of thousands of uh, emergency room visits, people coming in with asthma in the middle of the night. Uh, it, uh, it is... Uh, a terrible blight on the landscape uh, in places like West Virginia and Kentucky, where people are, you know, where the industry now is uh, mainly in the business of lopping the tops off mountains, uh, grinding up the uh, the tops of the mountains, and then 
ex- after extracting the coal, simply plowing all the waste back into valleys uh, so that, you know, uh, beautiful parts of the country, which used to consist of mountaintops and valleys, are now getting flattened out, literally, uh, as these tops are lopped off and plowed down into the valleys. Uh, there are all kinds of, like, second-order and third-order uh, uh, environmental effects associated with that. You have to, like, dam up this slurry from the coal mining. These dams can then burst and uh, uh, be almost like regular water dam disasters. Uh, out west, uh, you know, where uh, mining, to coal mining is to a greatest extent shifted to, uh, um, the area of Montana, Montana and Wyoming, uh, that part of the country, uh, strip mining is being done on a massive scale. Well, you know, most Americans never see these operations, uh, uh, are almost completely unaware of them. Uh, and uh, it's important, I think, when uh, looking at our overall energy situation and considering how we could modify our use of energy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to keep all these major elements in view uh, at the same time uh, and, and not just consider... Uh, you know, one particular aspect of one particular technology in isolation from all the rest. So certainly, you know, uh, climate change and um, energy are are very complex issues, and, you know, for many of us, we only see a very small aspect of it in our lives. Certainly, we need more communication between scientists with the public, uh, scientists with policymakers, and uh, journalists have a role to facilitate that. You know, do you have any feelings on... uh, if any changes are needed in journalism to uh, uh, inform the, the world a little better? Hmm. Well, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I will say this. Uh, uh, you know, my book is one of actually a handful of books that came out uh, in the last year, a year and a half, uh, about uh, climate change and the implications of climate change. And uh, uh, I know I undermine any uh, attempt at any claim of originality that I might want to make by, by emphasizing this, but, but the truth of the matter is that my book is just one of about six books that came out in the last year, uh, all pointing out that climate change uh, is a very serious issue, arguing that, uh, arguing that uh, there is a real possibility of catastrophic climate change, uh, and by catastrophic, I think we all mean uh, uh, sea levels a, rising up twenty global, feet. <laughs> a, a global, you know, a global uh, or supra-regional uh, kind of transformation of climate systems, such that a whole uh, whole civilizations, uh, in the sense of economic, you know, economic systems that sustain you know, tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people in the world, that they could be jeopardized right. uh, very, very suddenly by climate change. Uh, now, if you, uh, you know, and all these books, of course, argue more or less explicitly that we need to take much more concerted action than we're taking right now to address this problem. Now, if you look at these books, they're almost all written by journalists. Uh, they're not written by scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, in a way, uh, I hope I'm not patting myself on the back too much here. In a way, I think we're kind of doing our job. Uh, you know that that uh, scientists, you know, are constitutionally very uh, reluctant to go out on limbs and make uh, strong, you know, sort of programmatic statements about uh, 
matters that they see as political. Uh, and so you're not going to find very many scientists who are really willing to say much more in public than, than what they feel follows very directly from their own research. Uh, uh, you know, they will, they will be willing to, uh, to describe and explain and discuss uh, whatever it is they've done most recently uh, and, uh, uh, re- you know, explain that to reporters who in turn will then explain it to the general public, or they might even speak directly to the public uh, by testifying to Congress or speaking uh, on television, whatever. Uh, but uh, scientists, by and large, are very, very loath uh, to make large-scale political statements based on developments taking place throughout the entire field that they're working mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I think what you're seeing happening here is the journalists are sort of stepping into this breach and, uh, and in essence saying, well, if you guys are afraid to say what you're thinking, we're going to do it for you. <laughs> and this is what we think you're thinking. And that's what I really see myself as doing here. I see myself as just saying what I think many, many scientists are thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, namely, that we're in a situation today which is actually seriously threatening to civilization. Uh, I see it as the foremost issue facing the globe as a whole uh, in this century. Uh, and I think that so far the actions being taken in general, but especially by the United States, are grossly inadequate. Uh, and that's really my message. Well, I certainly appreciate your efforts. I'm just wondering, is there danger that all these books are just preaching to the already converted and that we're not getting the message out to you know, people who are adamant that climate change is not a problem? Sure. There is. And I don't, I don't know what the answer to that problem is, but uh, I, there certainly is that, that danger. Uh, I, am, I am very... Uh, gratified by how well Al Gore's book and movie have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that uh, he is actually reaching some people who are not already in the choir. <laughs> uh, I mean, just to judge by the reviews it's received, it's been reviewed by a lot of people who have been fairly skeptical about uh, uh, climate change and climate science, and a lot of those reviewers have been saying, yeah, they're pretty impressed by the evidence as Gore presented in the movie. And so, you know, I think we're making maybe some headway and breaking a little bit beyond, you know, that 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 circle of people who already converts converted. But it is it is uh, you know as you suggest, it's certainly a, a, a serious problem. Uh, and I guess we always need new ideas about how uh, about how to communicate this stuff best. Great. I guess we are running a little bit of time. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or uh, your work? No, I don't think so. Uh, if, you, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm a person who's worked uh, in journalism for about 25 years now, uh, specializing in matters having to do with technology, society, and, uh, and politics. And uh, this book, you know, grew out of several different uh, things I've been interesting, interested in over a period of 15 or 20 years. Uh, uh, nuclear arms control, nuclear energy, climate, uh, and and social policy. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay, it was a pleasure being with you. And you were just listening to Mr. William Sweet discussing kicking the carbon habit. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, come up in just a few minutes. It's the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. And now it's time for the world-famous question of the week. And here in the studio to help us out, it is, of course, our very own Simon the Smoking Monkey. Simon, how you doing? Well, you know, all the great tobaccos all in Cuba. The damn U.S. won't let us have them anymore. We were trying to get people to give it up by not taking it up, Simon. Monkeys know how to enjoy life, too, you know. They're just like humans. Well, we, we like you to enjoy life. We like it so much that we're curious if it occurs on a regular basis, much like a pulsar. What is a pulsar? And so these pulsars, they got this funny spin thing going on, and that's why they emit waves on a regular basis. Wow. We'll know the next time we take a look there. All right, have a smoke. Thanks a lot, Simon. All right, and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music.